I'm like, who am I without this? Yeah, just thankful that I'm able to, to live that life. You live in the moment and keep your eyes on the horizon. The power of connecting with something. Kind of like a breakthrough. The ultimate acknowledgement of truth. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Offshore Insights Podcast, where we share captivating individuals and stories connected by water. I'm your host, Evan Luth. It's great to be back with y'all after a bit of a hiatus from the show. I recently left my lifetime home back in San Diego and moved up to Central Oregon, outside of the Bend area, just to begin a new chapter with my wife and a now growing number of animals that live on our property. While I have been thoroughly enjoying the experience of living in this new environment, I'd be lying to you if I said that it's been free of its challenges. This transition has been major, and it has made adjustments in just about everything in my life, including what I believe constitutes my sense of self or identity. But that is to be expected, and most good things are not without their challenges. And for that, I welcome the puzzle. That being said, I've been extensively immersing myself in all the environments I can, And the amount of novelty that I get to experience is far more than I could have ever imagined. And I'm grateful for those moments of awe and wonder that this new life is providing me. There's plenty of learning still to do, and I do it every day. But I think I'm starting to get a hang of this whole living on a farm in the trees thing. But what can I say? I wanted more nature and less people. And, well, we certainly have that in spades. And it doesn't hurt that when I do decide to make the trek out to the coast, I find waves that are empty, hollow, and of a fantastic quality. I'm loving the ways that water is teaching me new things about this place, and I look forward to where that water leads me. Gently down the stream, for this life is but a dream. For today's episode, I sit down with world-famous professional climbing pioneer Randy Levitt. In discussing his lifelong journey, it became readily apparent to me that Randy thinks well outside the box as he makes regular practice of throwing himself into a variety of high-risk activities in different environments. Although he's most well-known to pushing the envelope in a variety of climbing disciplines, he also delves into a spectrum of other exhilarating experiences, such as kayaking in the Grand Canyon, big wave surfing, becoming a pilot, and base jumping off of El Cap, just to name a few. He explains the importance of finding autonomy in your work life in order to pursue your passions and how it's always wise to have a plan A and a plan B. We also delve into near-death experiences, the wisdom and insights gleaned from them, and his process in learning to be a humble student of new disciplines. Randy is an inspiring and fascinating individual who I had the great pleasure of getting to know. I can't help but appreciate the somewhat serendipitous timing of this episode as well, because although we may have recorded this some months prior, we're now in the grips of the COVID-19 or coronavirus pandemic. And I think Randy has some wonderful wisdom to share on the importance of pushing your comfort levels with calculated risk-taking while remembering to prioritize living the most fully and not letting fear get the better of us. I hope you all enjoy this conversation as much as I did. So without further ado, I give you episode 14 with Randy Levitt. Well, Randy, welcome to the Offshore Insights. Thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man, I'm stuck that you uh, were willing to make this happen and I appreciate you getting the space all set up for us here. It's really nice. 
Well, I, I got to uh, give a shout out to Mesa Rim Climbing Gym who gave us a space and uh, it's a place I hang out a lot climbing indoors. And yeah. It's been a lot of fun. It was very kind of them. I appreciate that as yeah. well. Yeah, I'll have to thank them. Um, so just to kind of get us started, I was hoping maybe for those of our listeners who aren't familiar with you already, maybe just give us a little bit of a background as far as where you grew up, um, you know, how you grew up maybe affected your path and uh, where you're at now. Well, I, I guess most people know of me as a rock climber, so that's where I'll start. I, I got into rock climbing at a family camping, ranching uh, deal in Colorado when I was very young, and I just took to it right away, and I loved it. And what I loved about climbing was that it was the first thing that it really could sink my teeth into, where I felt like I had purpose and some sort mm-hmm. of drive to learn something. And up until about then, I was just a little kid just hanging out. And my parents raised me. Uh, traveling all over the world. I was an Air Force brat, so I would live in various countries and wherever my dad was stationed. Hmm. And we came back to California eventually, went on a trip to Colorado and did this family ranching thing where um, they said I was really good right away. And so after that, that was like a little memory chip that went in my head like, oh, there's this thing climbing. And then my sister ended up dating this guy who bought a rope and a book on how to rock climb. It was Royal Robbins Basic Rock Craft. Cool. So we would go out with this book and fold it open and say, oh, this is how you set up an anchor. This is how you tie the, does it look like the diagram? Yes, it looks like the diagram. And he was a little older than me. Um, I think I was about 14 at the time. Uh, And I started just really, really enjoying it. And I, I don't think that I was naturally any better than the other guys I was climbing with, it seemed like we were all sort of in the same zone there. So I think I was a standout in the summer camp, but the guys that were attracted to climbing, I felt like I was just kind of one of them. Sure. And um, it's funny when you start climbing or anything you do, whether you're surfing or climbing and you're very young, you look at like, what's hard? What, what should I expect to be able to do? And so climbing has this grading system that was developed in Yosemite that was basically a 5.1 up to a 5.9 and that system didn't describe all the difficulties so it it, it started getting higher like 5.10, 5.11, 5.12 now it's up to 5.15 so when I started climbing 5.11 was the hardest and you look at that and go okay I should strive to do that right so it's interesting now when guys are starting to climb and they look at the grading system, they look at 515, that's the hardest. Uh-huh. So like 511, which was my goal when I started as a kid, is now like you it's better do it on your point. second day if you're right. really good. Right. So, <laughs> And do you, do you see that as, as a continuation over time that, that that will just expand further and further? Or do you think that it's kind of reached the uh, ceiling here as far as being a broad enough scale to permit the it, progress? It's going to slow down because yeah. what's happened is now climbing is popular enough that they're attracting the most talented and the right. most motivated. Right. So back in my day, it was like the most motivated sure. would learn how to climb. And now you're going to find some person in Ethiopia that's right. like a crazy strong, like inhumanly strong. Sure. And he's combined with smart and motivated and, you know, wherever this person comes from, yeah, they can pop up anywhere because there's climbing gyms. So. So they're going to naturally hit this peak where it's really hard to break through another barrier. Right. But I think clearly it has a fair amount farther to go. Huh. Because I, I know how hard people can climb move per move. And now it's just a matter of connecting it for longer distances. Sure. 
and and being able to find the right rock climbs to, interesting to be that hard I hadn't really thought of it, but it seems like there's probably a lot of parallels between that and the wave pool situation going on with surfing in terms of it's only a matter of time because of the accessibility component now mm -hmm. that and having controlled environments where you're going to see the real peak maximum performance you know available on a broader scale. You know, the, the, the best surfer in in the world might be in Kansas, right? Yeah, yeah, we don't know exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah com completely landlocked somewhere. Uh -huh. Yeah, never seen the ocean, never been surfing. Yeah, yeah, it's that's very interesting. That's cool. Climbing's a little more accessible. Yeah, I mean, because the climbing gym is, uh, you don't need an invite from Kelly Slater. Right, yeah, or if anything, just have a wall. Hey, Kelly, if you're you know? out there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, <clears throat> wouldn't mind. <laughs> um, and you're here in San Diego currently, and where are you living right now? I live in Sunset Cliffs, okay. Point Loma area. Very cool. In preparation for this discussion, I had read several interviews with you, and I found it really interesting. Something that kept coming up was you were, you were um, kind of, specifying the importance of being able to not only know your own limits when you get into something like this, but to be able to make the distinction between risk calculation and risk taking. And I'm just curious how you would clarify the distinction between those two. Well, what the clarification is where you meet in between, it's really risk management. So you, you acknowledge that you're taking risk and at the same time you're trying to manage it uh, or minimize it. So it's really a management thing. Right. It's like, you know, and the older you get, the less risk you really want to take because it takes longer to heal. You realize your mortality a little more. Sure. So things I did when I was 20, I would never do now. But I still do things now that some people would consider risky. But I don't. You know, I don't, I don't go on a surfing trip or a climbing trip and kiss my wife goodbye and say, oh, it's, right. this might be the last time. <laughs> I just, it doesn't seem like that at all. Sure, sure. No, that makes sense. I mean... It seems like in general, I mean, you kind of just touched on this, but how do you see your approach as having changed with time in terms of through the aging process? You've now had a pretty full life. You're in what, your early 50s? 58. 58. Uh -huh. So you've had a long life packed full of high risk activity. And obviously you've achieved a number of amazing firsts and kind of pioneering feats and some really crazy shit, frankly. How has that changed your relationship to either fear itself as far as the emotional content of that or just the way you do your risk calculation? Well, I, what I've learned is is it's really important to live because this life on our planet is amazing. This is like heaven on earth. I don't know what comes after this, but to me, this is it. You got to recognize it. it. You got to seize it. You got to enjoy it while yeah. it's here because no one knows really what happens after. Absolutely. And you don't want to cut that short, but you also don't want to live in so much fear of being fearful that you can't go out and experience things and mm -hmm. take some risk. And when you do stuff that's exhilarating and you do stuff that's risky, you do feel more alive. Right. I mean, there's guys like Alex Honnold who probably don't feel alive unless they're really on the edge. Right. And there's guys like me who are like, I can be comfortable in my own house with creature comforts and be very happy, but I can also be like on the edge somewhere, some crazy surf trip where right. things could go wrong and it could be bad. But, at but the you same, feel like you're thriving. But I feel like I'm thriving. Right. So I think for each individual person, it's a matter of pushing themselves close enough to that point, no matter what it is, whether it seems really minimal or it seems really extreme, it's, it's a good idea to push yourself into a little bit of uncomfort. Yeah, that makes me think um, of something else you had said where you were talking about as a teenager how you frequently would 
you know, if you wound up in a bind or in tough moments, you'd, you'd kind of recite these like mantras or like idioms, right? Where you like, I think the example you gave um, in the article that I'm thinking of was actually the, uh, how, does, how does one eat an elephant one bite at a time or something like that? Right. Is that correct? Uh-huh. Yeah. So I'm just kind of curious, do, how do you see things like that, whether it be a mantra or just kind of something like that? A mental tool is, is playing a role in helping you kind of persevere. That, that was early on. That was a uh, big wall climb I did in Yosemite when I was soloing, but with a rope. Right. And it was a multi-day climb. And I actually got to a point where I didn't think I could climb this next section. And it was too overhanging to retreat. And so I'm basically stuck in the middle of this giant wall in Yosemite. This is before cell phones right. and any of this stuff. No, you're so properly I'm, stuck. I yeah. feel very alone. And somehow that little saying came up in my mind, well, like, how do you get past the section or whatever? How do you do this? And the idea of, like, a friend of mine popped up in my head, and this guy was saying, how do you eat an, ele- how do you eat an elephant? And his answer was, one bite at a time. Uh-huh. And I'm just like, okay, well, I'll, I'll just... Just try, like I'll go part way up this lead and I'll just go a little farther and a little farther and suddenly you're committed and you're just fully going for right. it. And so I talked myself into that. I don't really find myself doing that anymore, mm-hmm. like having to have any mantra or something. That's something that got me over an edge, but what, what I think it did is it, it made me realize that I was capable of getting to that point right. and getting over the edge sure. and, and succeeding. Yeah. And so for that it was helpful but over time those things kind of went away right where i would just know in my own mind that hey i'm capable of something like this. right so the real utility of it was you know as far as that mechanism was to teach you about yourself and your own abilities right so it was a bit of a, a gap you know bridging mm-hmm. yeah interesting yeah you learn a lot about yourself under stressful situations right you right you know climbing expeditions in the mountains or you know just so I've been out in, uh, surfing in big waves times where, uh, you know, you see your partners get stressed and suddenly like what is normal behavior for them is right. they, things change. So it's interesting how you react to stress. Yeah. And it, it's good to be able to have a point where you get to that and you find out about yourself and how you can improve next time. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, it seems like obviously, um, whether it just be the isolation of the activity itself and or just the extremity of, you know, where it pushes you physically and mentally, that the internal process has got to be equally as intense, I would imagine, you mm-hmm. know, as a physical application. And you got a lot of time to self and internal dialogue, it seems like. It's something I always imagine climbers like kind of maybe going crazy sometimes, you know, especially if someone's like Honol, where it's like such long processes where it's, you're just like, man, how do you maintain? Yeah, that's abnormal. Right, yeah. Well, he's clearly uh, that, yeah. I, I also find it interesting the older I get, I mean, there truly is, you start to doubt yourself a little bit more. Uh-huh. Like, I doubt, I don't, I don't have less confidence, but I just know my mortality and, and the limitations more. And so that creeps up on you. The older uh-huh. you get, it starts creeping up and creeping up. And so for me, it's important for me to keep actively challenging myself right. so that I don't fall victim of becoming like an old guy sure. or like someone who just doesn't do stuff anymore. Yeah. And it's it's more of a, an, a self-awareness uh, that keeps me being who I am rather than trying, I'm not trying to be someone who I'm not, I'm just trying right. to be who I am. And it seems and like it, a, a component of humility too, obviously, in terms of that self-awareness to like be honest with yourself. Like you mm-hmm. said, it's, you know, okay, my body's changing, my my you know, relationship to fear is a little more heightened or whatever it is, but just being really honest with yourself. Exactly. There, there are things that I start to do that I'll 
I'll just basically pull the plug and say I really don't have the time to devote right. to this to be any good at it, and it's not you know it's something I could get hurt. Yeah, I, I think I need to just step back, yeah. do something else. To not do it with the safety or the excellence that you'd like to achieve. Yeah, mm-hmm. interesting. Yeah, I mean that makes me think when we first met last time um, at the other Mesa room, <laughs> we uh, you had said something to me about how when you were younger and you were thinking about your future in climbing that you thought you would just only climb as long as you're progressing and that it, and that once you stop progressing you'd stop but that at some point that changed for you and um, I'm just curious what you think would account for that change of heart and how maybe you've been able to maintain your uh, close connection to climbing over time as well as just kind of keep the stoke alive well it's I think I realized that you that I just love doing it and I used to love getting better at it and when that stopped happening say I was I don't know 35 36 I wasn't improving anymore, mm. then I still love doing it, but I love doing first ascents, like finding new climbs, right. establishing them. It was like a discovery period. It was a, and it's something I've always done is first ascents, but that carried me forward for a number of years. And then after a while, even when those start to run out, you feel like, well, I just love the physical addiction of the sport. Like, uh, climbing is a very, very healthy thing to do for your body, and it's a great way to stay fit. So now I find myself just coming to Mesa Rim to go climbing because I love the, the, the motion, I love the feeling, right. the physical workout of it, and it still keeps me in good enough shape when I do find a first ascent or something that inspires me, I can do it. Yeah. So it it's, it's really just keeps me going. I don't know when I'm 70 what I'm going to be like if I even sure. will climb still, but maybe I'll be just super happy that I can climb 5'11 and I'm 70 years old. I don't That'd be know. cool, wouldn't it? <laughs> I mean, climbing, it's all about contentment, I'll, right? I mean, I'll be it's... climbing harder at 70 than I was at 15. Yeah, yeah. well, it's all relative, right? Yeah, it's yeah. like to whatever gives you that equal level of contentment or, you know, stoke that you derive from it. So it seems like just kind of, you know, you're saying just broadening the value points that you derive from it, but also um, changing some of what you appreciate out of the exchange, like appreciating the novelty, like you were saying, of just new experiences and exploring and not just being so driven by your personal progress. Right. Yeah, that makes and, total and it, sense. It really stems from a love of doing something, you know, right. and an appreciation for it. So, yeah. Uh, I always, the, the things I choose to do are things that I feel really inspire me in some way. Right. You know, it makes sense to me. And climbing makes a lot of sense. I mean, if you're a kid, you understand it because kids love to climb. Right. And then they're, what I see happening is the parents take the kids to the climbing gym. Mm-hmm. And then the parents see other parents, like guys, people like me, like that are old climbing. Mm-hmm. And they say, wow, that guy climbs pretty good. Oh, yeah. I should try this. Right, he's right. having a good time. And then yeah. they have a good time. And Interesting. And, and so it makes a lot of sense. It's, yeah. it's, a, it's a really nice thing. It's like surfing. You yeah. know, surfing has that same appeal. Right. You'll see generations... Uh, guys out with their sons surfing or their daughters. I think as well, a parallel in surfing, but also just, um, I guess for a lot of different kind of pursuits that people who get into it for the love and for the play, especially if you do as a kid, that's just the natural way of interacting with the world, right? You do what you love and you, you know, you play. Mm -hmm. And that over time, if you're either naturally gifted or you become good at something, you can kind of confuse why you're there doing what you're doing and conflate it with like, progress and achievement and all this stuff and and how I feel like a lot of times that's fairly common for people's life experience to forget that what the real foundation of that brought them there is the love and the you know the connection they have to it yeah adults should not forget how to play absolutely yeah 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 it's what's the uh that quote the um 
we don't stop playing because we grow old. We grow old because we stop playing. Exactly. You know, and it's like, that's always wrong cheer for me. I'm just like, yeah, you got to play. <laughs> what are you doing? You know? <laughs> um, so you were, you were kind of mentioning right before we got started here um, that you had a couple stories you wanted to touch on. And obviously you've had like a pretty robust life and, and as obviously career too, in terms of adventure seeking and really exciting stuff. And um, I'm curious if uh, that story you thought of and or other ones pop out to you as like particularly pivotal moments in your life as far as experiences. Some uh, pursuits are things that I'll never stop doing, like climbing. I can see myself climbing forever, surfing forever. Um, recently, I started foil surfing, mm -hmm. whether it's prone or where you paddle into the wave and then the foil starts flying and, you, and you're riding the foil or towing in where you're basically already flying on it and you get towed into these waves. Uh, that, that's the latest thing I've been doing. Uh, no, one of the things that we mentioned or I mentioned to you before the podcast was a trip I took to the Grand Canyon, which I don't think I've talked about before, but it was one of those things where it was an activity that I did and then I quit. Hmm. It wasn't something that I loved to do so much that I wanted to continue it. And kayaking down the Grand Canyon was this thing that I had always wanted to do. Uh -huh. I had been inspired to uh, kayak the Grand Canyon from you know, old movies I saw of Powell going down in the dories cool. and back in the day. And a good friend of mine who I climbed with uh, named Jorge Visser was a river guy in the Grand Canyon. We started climbing together in 1992 and he encouraged me to get on the waiting list for the Grand Canyon. And mm. He said, it's an average of five years, but just sign up and in five years, your name will come up and we'll go down the Grand Canyon and it'll be a private trip. So right. it's not a, a commercial one where you have to go with 40 other people you don't know. You have your own permit, you're allowed to take, I, don't, I forget how many people, but maybe 10, 12, 15. So I, I signed up in 92, but it got so popular that no one dropped off the waiting list. So right. the waiting list, got longer and longer and longer because no one was dropping off. Finally, my my uh, number came up in 2009. Wow. So what is that, like uh, yeah, seven, 17 years later? Right. Wow. Uh, and by that and time... And you'd probably completely forgotten about it at this point. I had. Yeah. I had a Perception Dancer, which was like state-of-the-art in 92, and it was so outdated in 2009 that I <laughs> yeah, didn't even Yeah, you were wanna... prepared for a decade prior. <laughs> yeah. I didn't even want to ride it anymore, and I'd, I'd only gone down one river with that, and I so I basically did not know how to kayak. Right. Uh, so all of a sudden, there's my chance. I was right in the middle of a big business transaction that year and was unable to really get the time away to do it. Hmm. But the way things worked out, I thought, oh, I could close this business deal in mid-2009 and make it down the Grand Canyon, I think it was late August, mm -hmm. which was a really prime time to go down there. So I had given up on the idea, but then it was, it was sort of possible. And one day I was uh, hanging out with my plumber at one of the properties. We were doing a giant sewer lateral replacement. It was a big project. And we're starting to talk, and he said, hey, no one's ever died going down the Grand Canyon. He seemed to know this fact that right. is actually not true. I was going to say, that seems far-fetched. Yeah. Yeah. So he said, no one's ever died. We're going to, we'll just get a raft, and we'll start on the top, and we'll go down. How hard could it be? And I go, you know, you're right. I like that. So 
you're you're like my number one guy right. and we're gonna put a team together confidence man yeah he's my confidence man <laughs> yeah. he knows nothing so i put this team together and it was uh doug engelkirk joe brooks um and a guy named randy and uh he was a he was a, an experienced river guide so he was able to help with the logistics of this is what we need um and then I, a friend of mine named Zach also wanted to kayak. So we had two kayaks and I think we had three rafts. And long story short, we ended up on top of that river learning how to kayak. And, and I remember the first couple of rapids I went down, I was just, I had to swim every rapid. You know, I'd go upside down, I couldn't <laughs> right. do an Eskimo roll. You know, I, it was, it's called a combat roll when you're like in the white water trying okay. to roll back over. And after a while, my goal was just to make, down, make it down one rapid that had a name without having to swim. Right. And by the end of that trip, I was actually okay at kayaking. I bet. But yeah, I mean, talk about being thrown into the thick of it. Yeah. You're gonna learn pretty quick that way. <laughs> and it was absolutely intense because you're, when you're going down the canyon, it's, uh, the Grand Canyon is, has a lot of pool drops. So basically it's pretty calm water mm -hmm. leading to some pretty radical rapids leading to calm water. So no matter what happens, it's gonna be over pretty quick. Right. And it's gonna be pretty intense. Right. So you'll just be coasting down this canyon on this nice glassy water. And at the very edge, you'll see it sort of disappears. It's like the, a disappearing edge pool. Uh-huh. Yeah, infinity and then, pool. Yeah. And then you hear this jet engine, and it's the rapids. And the closer you get, the louder the jet engine gets. And there's just this feeling of inevitability where you're just floating, floating, floating. And you know that it's so inevitable that you're going down that thing. And your heart starts racing, and you're like not that confident. You don't really know what you're doing. And, uh, and then all of a sudden it's game on. And a lot of times you'll have scoped the rapid already. So you sort of have a game plan right. where you're gonna avoid holes and what your line you're gonna try to take. God, what a but, suspenseful anticipation though. I mean, talk about surrender. You're like, well, I, I have to, so. <laughs> and we didn't even know like, how you should paddle a, uh, a rapid. Right. I thought I had to charge it as hard as I could. And one time we, we had to swim this rapid. It was yeah, you would kind of think like, okay, I gotta like build up speed and right. send it off the edge. It, it's not about that at all. Right. You, you're gonna have the speed. You just basically need to position yourself and brace and uh -huh. and uh, some other techniques that we are sort of figuring out. And anyway, we we wiped out on this one rapid, and we both Zach and and I had to swim. And there was another party there, and there were these really experienced guys in kayaks, and they grabbed our boats and got in, us over to an eddy. And Zach and I started asking him really basic questions about like how we should be on doing the rapids. And they look at us with this like, horrible look in their face. Me. Yeah. Like, yeah. like, I can't believe these guys this are asking This is where you're at and you're understanding. <laughs> yeah. but, but that trip was, uh, it was an amazing trip. It really was because it was so suspenseful. It was so beautiful. Uh, mm -hmm. the, the Grand Canyon is just an awesome trip. So if anyone wow. ever has a chance to do that trip. I honestly, uh, I'd only thought about it mildly because of other stories I've heard, but hearing you describe it in that way and, and how you went through it is very cool. It sounds like something worth doing for sure. When, when I finished that trip, I used to tell my friends, it's the best trip I've ever done and there was no climbing and no surfing. Right. Yeah. Which is probably a good reminder too that, that the trips are everywhere, you know, so mm -hmm. to speak. You know, it's like you can find that trip in various areas of life. Yeah. And yeah. for some people, it's it's a completely different experience or a different type of a trip. It could, you know. So I encourage everyone to go out there, get a little out of their comfort zones. Yeah, you know, yeah. Uh, experience something, and you remember it the rest of your life. Absolutely. 
and you had said that obviously you were in the middle of a big business deal at the time and um this is another theme that i had noticed coming up when i was doing some research on you is that you seem to always advocate for the importance of having a plan a and a plan b and i think for a lot of people it'd be somewhat counterintuitive that you would consider plan b to be climbing for you given your kind of prolific career and you know um status within that world uh you know, what do you think is so important about doing that? And, um, and how do you see choosing a different plan A other than your passion pursuit is permitting you maybe like greater latitude to pursue passions and, you know, in this case, climbing? Pursuing your passions is really important. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't discourage anyone from doing that, but I see a lot of uh, guys that want to, young guys and girls that want to be pro climbers and that's their plan A. And so I'm like, well, you know, that's fine that, that that's your plan A, but make uh, make something else your plan B and be prepared to make your plan B your plan A. And and that's really the way it works out. Because right. There's not a lot of money in climbing unless you're the best in the world. I mean, my passion uh, in business was real estate, and I could be, say, in the top 100 uh, apartment investors in San Diego, mm -hmm. and I could make a really good living. Uh, I can't be in the top... 10 best climbers in the world and make a great living. Right. You know, right. so that's, it's, there's a huge difference there. Yeah. And people have to be realistic about what they think they can get out of these sports as far as a profession goes and really have something else lined up. Mm -hmm. And it's also nice uh, to have a sort of occupation where you can take rest days on climbing and do something productive like doing computer coding or sales or sure. investing yeah or, productive downtime kind yeah, of or or a trade that right. you do i mean it seems like in general that people kind of forget is there's such a fragility to these you know lofty ambitions sometimes you know, especially if you do use your physical body or depend on your physical body to achieve these things you know obviously we're um we're temporary here and you can never count on you know not losing some capability in that way but it sounds like by you prioritizing your business, you know, ambitions, that really freed up a lot of time. Maybe not immediately. Maybe it's probably harder to manage early on. But it seems like as you made better money, and that permitted you the freedom to then go take time and have greater latitude in that way. A key for me was being self-employed. Uh -huh. Through college, I was able to pay my way through college with mostly the help of my parents, but right. some of my own funds to go through college. I was a house painter and wallpaper hanger. And I worked for myself. Mm -hmm. After that, I started my real estate business working for myself, yep. getting investors. So the idea of being self-employed for me worked. Everyone's got to find their own path, but the, you need flexibility. You need to have people that you work with that understand that you have passions that might, you know, you can put in the hours, but they might not always be the regular hours. Right. And I, I consider myself, I was almost overly motivated, so I don't think... You know, the average person had that kind of drive sure. that I had. So it it might not work out in the same way for other people, but it's something to to just keep in mind, just yeah. to keep uh, self-employment, flexibility. You know, your time is valuable. You know, in the end, that's all you have. Your Yeah, that is the real wealth. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, do you see that as being a direct extension that got you into other really cool stuff like flying? Or was that just kind of something that happened to come along for the ride i mean in terms of uh, financial accessibility to get to do something like flying on a regular basis obviously it takes a fair amount of support was that something that came later in life as a result of that or was that something you'd always wanted to do and just like finally were able to afford uh, flying snuck up on me and 
in a weird way where I would go down to Baja with a friend of mine, actually a couple of friends who have small Cessnas. Like mm -hmm. One of them has a 172, another one had a Cessna 182. And we would take these trips down to Baja and some of them were risky sort of toe-in surfing, crazy adventures mm -hmm. where I thought, well, this guy that I'm going with, uh, he always goes for it and something might happen to him. Right. He seems like he's kind of on the edge and what are we gonna do when we're in Baja in the middle of the winter and there's no one around? I need to fly the plane. And we didn't drive here. Yeah. Right. So yeah. I started thinking, well, if I got a license, then I could be the backup pilot. I could get us back home. I could also maybe fly myself and be more independent, and I would save all this time. And that's a big fallacy because saving time, yeah. by, by the time you learn how to fly and you've maintained your own plane and right. you've gone through all this crazy amount of work to maintain your license, there's no saving time being a right. pilot. Yeah, it but, seems like you're kind of, I mean, when, when you were kind enough to invite me to come on the flight with you, which was a super awesome experience, um, you had made reference to the amount of hours, the amount of study time that you put into getting to where you're at, but also to how much more ahead of you there is to like still, you know, get through. Um, it seems like a kind of a never ending pursuit in terms of the information that you can absorb and learn and, you know. Mm -hmm. It's the deepest rabbit hole I've ever seen. <laughs> I mean, it's it's so deep. How many you got a stack of bucks at this you, point? You can never do enough in flying if you want to keep learning new things. Right. Um, and it's a lot of work just to maintain your skills. Sure. Just when you get your private pilot, your instrument rating, and those those sorts of skills take a lot of work just to maintain. But it's been great for me. And you know, it's financially, I got to a point where I could afford it. Uh, my dad was an Air Force pilot. He flew 30 missions oh, cool. during World War II. So there was a bit of an organic uh, seed there already. There was. He had yeah. something like 6,800 hours, 6,900 wow. hours. Um, he was a badass pilot, and he actually never took me flying. I, That's I think funny. By the time he had the kids, flying had become more of a job for him, and it wasn't. Right, sure. At, at that point, I think he had done everything he wanted to do. Yeah. But there must have been something in me that was appreciated that and I really never pursued flying while my dad was alive but later on when I had this idea about Baja being a great idea mm. to, to be able to fly if we had problems in Baja and the pilot had you know was injured or whatever sure uh, that that kind of planted this seed where I thought well I'll just get my p private pilot license right and when you go for your first lesson it's pretty cool you you go in this little Cessna 172 and your instructor basically lets you take off the plane Wow the first time that's wild and you're flying the plane and all of a sudden it's like wow i'm doing this and <laughs> you within, trust me for this <laughs> within a short period of time you're you're soloing around the pattern uh-huh and then you're doing a solo cross country and you just sort of like you're pinching yourself wow. thinking am i really doing this is this is a pretty significant level of autonomy to be given that early on it is i would uh, be almost uh yeah i don't know that's fascinating i would not have imagined that being that rapid of a case you know it, it happens quickly and it also is, you know, for someone like myself who I'm not going to do any great physical feats anymore at age 58. And so therefore, my, my desire to stay a little bit on the edge and to keep myself kind of sharp mm -hmm. is sort of satisfied by flying. Sure. Where it really keeps you on your toes. And it's a mental thing. It's not really a physical right. thing. Definitely an act of uh, extreme presence is mm -hmm. demanded. Mm -hmm. I mean, you, you seem like you have to be just absolutely 110% present otherwise there's a high risk of missing something critical it, it's uh, it's too bad flying's uh, become so expensive there, there's a number of reasons for that but flying used to be something more attainable to 
more middle-income families. Sure. But it's really a great experience. So if you ever have that inclination to mm. do it, you can afford to do it, or I would encourage parents to send their kids to pilot school. It's, it's, there's not enough pilots. It's a great discipline. Right. It's a great way to sort of have people grow up and think on their feet, be sharp. and It builds good faculties, I'm sure. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. it makes you understand stuff that I would never imagine I'd have to have to study. Like when I Such started as... flying, I thought it was just the feel of taking the plane off and kind of cruising around. And if someone had showed me the stack of books I'd have to read and understand, <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I probably would have never started. Probably would have walked away, yeah. But, you, but you're like, well, I got to learn about engines, and now I need to be sort of a mechanic. Uh-huh. I need to understand what's going inside that, that right. engine. I need to understand the weather. I need to understand... Uh, how electronics work, yeah. uh, how the radios are communicating. I need to understand this language talking to air traffic control and SoCal. Uh, I need to understand the rules of instrument flying. Right. And like it's a system that you're flying within. You have to understand all the rules, yeah. how everyone is sequenced, what your place is, how you should communicate. And it, it sort of never stops there. Right. And after a while, uh, you just realize, well, I'd be a better and safer pilot if I learned more about this and right. so you find yourself motivated to study yeah I'm sure a lot of people don't imagine it being um, such a broad spectrum of, of uh, you know disciplines but it obviously is kind of a confluence of all these various disciplines that permit you to have this comprehensive you know knowledge but also confidence you know in yourself and probably also permits you a little more pleasure too you know not stressing about feeling gray about something you're like oh, okay I know exactly how this works or why what's happening is happening and when you I always try to break down my flights and see what mistakes I made and sure. where I could improve. And when you have good flights and you know, you've, you've done some challenging things and you've done everything right, it's a great feeling. It's like, okay, I could have gotten behind the airplane and not, not done this approach well. Right. Um, it, it, I also am astounded as a mountaineer. Uh, my, uh, my original passion in climbing was really mountaineering, like Himalayan high altitude mountaineering. And I didn't know anything about, nothing about the weather back then. And now I know a lot more about it. And I can't believe God, I, I got by as a climber all those years and really not understanding the weather. Yeah. So. That is pretty wild. I understand. I learned more about the weather as a surfer. And I thought I knew a fair amount. Right. Because surfers are really motivated to learn how waves are formed. It's, yeah. Right. And therefore, right. you learn about yeah. sea level yeah. pressure. You, you and, want to learn how to capitalize. Uh -huh. Yeah. And they need local conditions to be good. So they right. get good at that. Whereas a pilot, you're sort of dealing with all that plus different layers of the atmosphere, uh, you know, all kinds of different aspects yeah. of, of the weather. You know, it makes me think of when you're saying that you didn't have the knowledge about, you know, weather patterns and, and understanding atmosphere necessarily at the time. It just made me think of. I think it was it was uh, at El Cap that you free that you free based off of, right? Uh huh. And no, I didn't free base. Free base is free climbing with a parachute. If you fall, you open the parachute. Okay. Okay. I, so I was the you... first guy to climb El Cap as a big wall climb, strap a parachute on, and jump off as a way to get. Wow. Up. Okay. So, so first of all, how did you come to that idea? But also, did you know at the time anything about the dynamics of you know aerodynamics or anything else, or was that just like one of those uh, wild inclinations that you just had a vision for and felt that you could achieve? The idea of jumping off El Cap as a way to get off, you know, as a tool for a climber to get off El Cap came to me when in 1978 I did a fourth ascent 
a, a route called the Pacific Ocean Wall on uh -huh. El Cap, and at the time, I think that was a hard, the second hardest route on the wall. Wow. Uh, my partner, Dale Bard, knew this technique of uh, wrapping up the haul bags, putting a hammock on there that we would sleep in at night as a parachute, mm -hmm. and throwing it off. Obviously, that's not something you Just can to do. lose weight, just to shed weight once yeah, you're done. So yeah. you don't have to carry it down, sure. down the east ledges. Now, you can't, it's not something you can do in Yosemite anymore because it's, it's too crowded. It's not, it's not lawful and all yeah. that. But, yeah, sure. But it's a technique we used in the 70s because no one seemed to know or uh -huh. care or it was just... And what just year was it. this? This was 78. Okay. And when, when we threw those haul bags off, I watched them just sail cleanly all the way down. I hung on a rope and leaned over the edge and, I, and all, this light bulb went off in my mind like, wow, that... That just went down there, just floated down there so easy. And then I started hearing these stories of uh, Carl Banish and his crew of base jumping off El Cap. And the guys on the wall, would climbers would report that these guys in these red and blue suits would be like diving head first with in, you know, in this tracking position, just like flying past them in open parachutes and landing in the meadow. And I thought, oh, I've got to do that. Wow. That just when these ideas grab me it's like something that makes sense uh -huh. so for me bungee jumping would not make sense because you're just jumping off you're, the bungee's catching you you like hundreds of feet later and somehow you got to either go back up or get down you're not really right. going you're, anywhere you're, it's a closed loop kind of yeah it's, it's sort of a pointless exercise yeah. other than the fear i mean returning some, back to point a for some people that might be just the greatest thing sure but for me it had to have this sort of logic uh -huh. And that, to me, had the ultimate logic. And sense of trajectory that would progress. and mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, you could, how great that you could get be in the mountains and then all of a sudden jump with a parachute <laughs> and be back to the bottom in, like, a minute. It's just it's funny, that too. Takes you say, hours. oh, great. Like, yeah, so, like, as if that's a normal thought in most people's mind. <laughs> uh, so I started learning how to skydive. Right. And I learned how to skydive. I probably had 80 jumps before I jumped out okay. cap. So, so you had a pretty good level of confidence leading up to that. A fair, a fairly good. Um, yeah. But that was back in the day where no one thought you should skydive or base jump off El Cap unless you had a thousand jumps. So I was treated like a pariah when I went to the jump, drop zone to learn how to jump, <laughs> and I would proclaim to people that I'm there to learn how to base jump. And yeah, they probably looked at me like, like you were nuts. crazy. Yeah. Because <laughs> no one does that. Somewhat rightfully so. Yeah. <laughs> no one does that unless they're a god. You right. Know, of, of skydiving. Sure. It probably seemed immortal at the time. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, but, you know, in reality, uh, jumping off El Cap is a pretty simple base jump, and it's not all that dangerous. Right. It's potentially dangerous. Well, and not that the climb is exactly safe either, you know, so it's like, <laughs> if you're already doing something high risk, like, that's really, is it a grade of difference at that point? You know, you just... Well, it, it's, it, you know, descending off the back of El Cap is, is not without risk also. Sure. So, uh, obviously, it's a lot more risky than, than rappelling back. Uh, and hiking down the east ledges, but uh, I guess my point is that on base jumping, uh, an object like El Cap is about as safe as it gets for base jumping. Okay. So anyway, I learned how to do that, and um, I think it was 1981, I did Excalibur with Michael Oklinski. Excalibur is a big wall on El Cap, and a friend of mine named John Yablonski carried my parachute up the other side and gave it to me, and I strapped it on and jumped off. Wow. And it just started this whole thing where now I wanted to either climb something and jump off of it, or in the case of the Black Canyon, I wanted to jump off to arrive at the base and then climb out. Right. Wow. 
It is, I mean, it, it really does make sense if you think of it. If you remove the inherent fear components that, you know, arrive in somebody and thinking of something like that, it does make a lot of sense. I mean, smarter, not harder, right? And certainly yeah. a lot, you know, more in flow with the opportunity at hand. <laughs> so everything I've really pursued had some c component where, you know, the, the process and the whole idea made sense to me. I, I, if, I, if I started doing something, like I started stand-up paddle boarding, I bought one of those things. And, yeah. And then I just, it, it just wasn't inspiring to me. Uh -huh. So I really didn't pursue sure. it. The kayaking was an amazing journey down the Grand Canyon. I did the Rogue River after uh -huh. that a few years later. And then I, I sold my kayak. It's like that really doesn't inspire Interesting. me. It's not something that I want to get good at. Yeah. It's something I've done that I've, that I've enjoyed. But surfing is something I want so to get. So it is fairly case sensitive for you, though, that the things that really hook you um, you know, are, have something unique, some unique qualities to them that speak to you directly. It's not just like a, you know, applies everywhere. It's very case sensitive. Yeah. You yeah. know, and I can see people doing stuff that makes a lot of sense, but it just doesn't inspire me or right. doesn't appeal to me. Because that was so, one of my questions was, do you see this kind of perseverance and, and kind of commitment to, you know, excellence or mastery in certain things as being pervasive throughout your life? Or is it case specific, you know, and, and uh, applicable to more, you know, specific things like surfing or climbing or? I think I've been pretty good about understanding myself. And when I see something that I want to pursue, I'll do it. Uh -huh. And when I see something that I want to do and do it, I'll do it, but then I'll stop. Right. I won't waste a lot of time. Would you say some of that is just listening to kind of your internal voice as far as what's speaking to you? Like, hey, I feel a draw to this thing and I should probably be receptive to that or? It is listening to yourself. Sometimes I'll go to sleep at night and I'll think about what I love to do and, you know, what's important to me. And, you know, life is choices. You have to make these choices. Right. And I've been really lucky in my life that I've been able to make a lot of choices and pursue a lot of things. Yeah. You know, more so than most people, but um, it's going to come to every person uh, where they're making choices and and really the choices that you make in life have a huge impact on where your life goes Yeah, everything you, you could marry the wrong person you could I mean you turn left instead of right you turn left instead of right. <laughs> yeah, you just it all adds up. Yeah, there was that there was that movie vanilla sky I Yeah, saw, remember that sure. Oh, yeah, no, it was, I mean it was brilliant the way that they were able to kind of uh -huh. Articulate that exactly. Yeah, I love stuff like that. It's it's just fun to think in that way you know, not, not without getting lost in the whole world of what ifs, you know, and, and um, but just simply the possibilities. Uh-huh. Yeah. Or, or someone that you meet that might show you something. Right. So I try to keep that in mind where I'm, I have the ability to expose people to things. I love you yeah. know, sh showing people things or taking them flying. For instance, like if I could create one pilot out of yeah. all my buddies who I take up, that would be cool because yeah. one person is going to be exposed to that world. They're going to get their pilot license and... And that'll make an impact on them. Well, I gotta say, I mean, you you know invited me up, like I said, the first time we met, and um, it definitely it, it turned me on for sure to the whole idea. You know, I had always kind of considered it to be fairly um, removed or unachievable for financial reasons, um, but it really opened my eyes to see a your approach, but also that you're a surfer and you use it for surfing and things like that. And I'd already kind of, if, if and when I thought of the idea, the possibility of it, that was always my fantasy, you know, just like you do mm -hmm. in Baja. It's like, okay, I want to fly to these places that I spend, you know, a day and a half driving to, but be there in a few hours and, you know, have the experience and the autonomy of going by air. Um, so anyways, to, to your point, 
it's effective. <laughs> and if you spent any time on Highway 1 in Baja, you know it gets pretty narrow. Yes. And yes. It, you're just one sort of distraction away from someone coming the other direction. Man, or one inch, yeah. Yeah. yeah with you know, the, those roads are crowned. Right. So that I think if, if two trucks are headed in opposite directions, uh, they miss each other, the mirrors miss each other because the roads are crowned. Because so the angle. Yeah. I right. mean, it's that close. I oh, see, yeah. I see people riding their bikes, you know, cross country oh down God. those roads, and I can't believe it. It that looks like one of the more insane things yeah. to do, just in terms of yeah, the odds. <laughs> yeah, that's not so, yeah, that's not something I ever want to do, frankly. No. I mean, I barely want to drive some of those roads under certain conditions, you know, with the trucks and everything. But um, Th those guys will probably say, uh, "Oh, Randy up on El Cap, he's crazy." Right. And I'm looking at these guys on the road <laughs> in Baja, nuts. and I, those guys are definitely right. crazy. Yeah, there's different flavors <laughs> of crazy. That's for sure. <laughs> But they're, they're pursuing what they want to do. Yeah. And I just don't like my risk management to be uh, up to someone else like that. Yeah, you got to try and remove as many X factors as you can. Yeah. Um, so obviously somewhere along the way you got into surfing. And when we spoke last time, you had told me a really funny story about being a novice surfer and trying to paddle out and getting denied at lower trestles here in San Clemente. Uh -huh. And um, I thought it was a really hilarious story. But um, so... First, can you maybe tell us how you you got into surfing initially, but also um, maybe just recap that story for us? When I I did one of my uh, landmark climbs, uh, sport climbs in the Virgin River Gorge, and I called it Planet Earth hmm. because I figured I had driven enough miles back and forth to that climb to do it that I could have driven around the planet. <laughs> Circumnavigate. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I added up all the miles. It kind of roughly equated to that. And so I, I put tons of miles on my car. It was just nothing for me to get in the car at 4 a.m., drive six hours, meet my partner at 10, climb for two days, drive home that night, you know, get home for the next work day. Yeah. And one day in San Diego, I had a, a thought where I just really had to have a pursuit that I lived near. And I lived in Del Mar. Mm -hmm. There's the ocean. I had a surfboard when I was in college. And I went out a few times and flailed. It was like a single fin, like mm -hmm. yellow banana colored gun, you know, that Kenny Bradshaw or someone would have had. Uh -huh. I had a picture of Kenny Bradshaw on my wall <laughs> when I was in college and he was at Waimea. And I thought big wave surfing was always cool. So then I thought, Like okay, most of the world, yeah. Yeah, so I'm gonna try surfing. I'm really gonna try it. And so I went out with a friend of mine one time and he said, yeah, it's gonna get better when the tide gets better. And I'm like, the tide? What do you mean the tide? Huh? <laughs> I didn't even know about tide <laughs> or how it, it changes. Yeah. <laughs> so I had a lot to learn and sure. I was 35 years old. Okay. So yeah, I came uh, to it pretty late in life. Yeah, yeah very late. Yeah. So, you know, I'm going to be limited for the rest of my life on how good I can get at surfing because you can't learn something at an adult age like right. you can when you're a grom. Sure. So that's always been a challenge, personal challenge for me to surf as good as I want to, but realize I only surf as good as I do. Uh -huh, uh -huh. But anyway, I, I, I'm still progressing in surfing, yeah. and uh, I'm loving it. A uh, buddy of mine named Chris Hubbard, who was a climber, uh, kind of a, uh, got together with me and realized that I could help him with his climbing. He could help me with my surfing. Cool. So he said, okay, we're going to, you know, we're going to go through this series of reefs that we're going to surf, and eventually we'll end up at Totos. And I had a good friend in Hawaii named Jeff Pfeffer, who also took me out to spots in Hawaii. So mm -hmm. I basically got raised uh, at an age, at 35, I was not afraid of anything. Right. Still, I was still willing to do anything. And I would go out in, you know, big Haleivo or Sunset and get annihilated 
and just get up and just like paddle for the next one. <laughs> you know, just like no worries. Yeah. Like here I am. Have to go lucky. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> uh, I think that's why the Grand Canyon was doable for me because I'd been in so much big surf. Right. That uh, getting uh, washed up in the in those rapids was really not a big deal. Uh, so anyway, I I. I I got raised on this diet of paddling into big waves, and after two years of surfing, I went out to Todos, and it was a 10-foot day, perfectly glassy. Chris had sort of waited for that right day, and 10 foot's big enough to get your attention. It's a pretty thick wave. Absolutely. I, I got a few waves, you know, dropping in in front of some other guys. Yeah. But there, there yeah. I was. I, hey, man. Sharon I, is Karen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then I was hooked on surfing, and, you know, surfing is just you can it's it's like a dance that you can perfect it's right there's so many subtleties and it's so wonderful i mean the, of all the things i've done in my life when you're getting barreled on a good wave honestly there's still nothing better i couldn't you agree know? more so that's the reality of it you know I, sure I know climbers like to think what they do is the best and everyone likes to think what they do is the best but i think when you get a good barrel, I don't know if there's really any other feeling. Yeah, I mean, obviously we're biased, yeah. but I would think that more people than not having had experienced that, you know, getting a barrel on a wave would likely say that there is no like higher pinnacle of experience, you know, that there's, it's such a, such a transcendental process that you go through and it's so wall deep in reality. It's also so removing from reality. You know, it's like such a space. Of, it's a wormhole. Yeah. You know, you're in this wormhole yeah. and there's all this energy around you. And it takes so much time to get good enough to get in that wormhole. Right. And there's, of and, course, the physics of the barrel, which is that it's a, one of the highest concentrations of negative ions that occurs organically. So it's, you're actually literally soaking up a high. Uh -huh. you, know, you come out of it, you know, commonly elated, but not just because you've accomplished something, but because you've just been charged up. You're literally just like got a fast dose, you know. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty cool. <laughs> Well, I'm glad you brought up the Totos thing because I had read about that somewhere in an article and it was obviously a pretty harrowing experience for you at one point. I don't know if it was that trip or another one because it, you had a near drowning experience out there, I think. Mm -hmm. And I recall, I think it's, you had quoted in the article by saying, this is where my life started or almost ended. My life is a timeline from there, both forward and backward. And I'd love to hear just kind of what you meant by that. By the time I had that day at Totos, it was... Uh... I was paddling into, you know, every day was like a 10 foot, 12 foot day. This is 10 to 12 Hawaiian. Right. You know, so these are like 20, 25 foot faces. And I had a couple of 15 foot days. And then there was this big day. It was like a 15 to 18 with some 20 foot sets coming in. Mm. And it was a raw swell where there was no one else out there. There was a fair amount of wind swell mixed in. So it was one of these Shifty. raw swells and kind of ugly and it was a overcast day but these big old ground swells would come in and just mow everything down mm. so we went out there on the ponga i paddled out on my my 10-0 whatever it was i think it was a 9-6 or a 10-0 and i got a 15-footer and i got another 15-footer and i'm like yeah i know where to sit and uh, my my buddies are hanging out on the ponga it was doug Eagle kirk and chris hubbard and so Chris paddles out, and then he's, he sees a set over the horizon, and he says, watch out for that thing. He's pointing at it, and I go, yeah, I know. I'm going to paddle to the peak. I know where it's, it's connecting, because I, I saw some 18-footers come in. 
thought, I want to get an 18-footer. I haven't gotten an 18-footer at Toto's. And all of a sudden, I'm looking out there, and there's a 20-footer. And I'm so far inside, mm. and the thing is going to detonate. The lip is going to detonate right on me. And I just swam as deep as I could, and the lip detonated on me. And I was driven so deep, I didn't even know which way's up. You know, it's, it's black. Yeah. But I could start climbing my leash. So I started climbing my leash, and I could see some light up there. And I'm getting to the surface, and boom, another wave hits. Another lip detonates right on me and pushes me back down. Yeah. And, and I'm just like, at that point, I'm like, hey, this is like panic time, right? This is a two-way pull-down. So I start climbing my leash again, and I'm tr trying to stretch my lips to get to the surface. And it's all foamy. And, you know, you're, you're trying to stretch your lips so that you can get a breath of clean air. And at that point, right when I'm getting to that point, I start getting tunnel vision and tingling in all my limbs. And I had a really calm thought. I said, I was almost an out-of-body experience where I thought, wow, this is how you drown. This is actually how it happens. It's happening. And I still had a, a motivation to stay alive, but it's a very calm thing, actually. And anyway, once you get that first breath, you're not calm anymore. You're like sucking down air again. You're like, okay, I'm alive. Back and, in and survival. Here, yeah, back in survival mode. Yeah. It was really a weird moment where you get close to dying and then you realize it. And that's why I have this timeline in my mind where I remember it's almost like that's when my life started and it's continued until now and before then it was another lifetime because that was a moment where it could have ended and it, it, it would have ended in such a calm way it was so weird so you saw it as a bit of a rebirth in terms of how you experience life right on a regular basis but also the way how you experience or perceive near-death experiences I had a, a weird reaction to that too. I came back to the boat and I crawled up in a fetal position because mm -hmm. it was it was brutal. I I was getting cleaned up by twenty foot sets, and then I'm getting cleaned up by like some fifteen foot sets, and then I'm getting cleaned up by ten foot sets, and then yeah. I'm getting cleaned by the, the little ringer. eight side inside eight foot sets, and then six foot sets inside, and I got washed all like through all the rock. through through the most outside of Todos all the way like into the second bay, and and then I made my way back to the boat crawled up in the fetal position and laid down there for like 45 minutes mm. and then I got back up and I think I paddled out again yeah and after that day I thought you know I'm not afraid of this anymore because that was as close as you can get yeah and I and I can be there and I can handle it what an incredible it, experience it, so instead of making me less afraid it made yeah me, I mean instead of made me more afraid it made right. me less afraid yeah well it's, I, it, I don't I don't think I you have proof to yourself that you, you were, were capable yeah yeah I don't think I have that same mindset anymore. Sure. I, I don't think I could. No, you don't it. need to do that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I don't you know this. Be there again. But you already have that knowledge. Yeah. And it's it's pretty fitting that um, you know, as you're describing it, you know, metaphorically as being the beginning or, or rebirth of some kind, that you went into a fetal position. You know, yeah. I mean, I think that that's probably some sort of uh, twist of uh, you know, whatever poetic fate there where you come back to the boat you know fetal up and then <laughs> reborn you know back in the lineup you know <laughs> well after that time uh, that's also when we started the jet ski thing started happening sure. and we started towing yeah and it's a joke at totos when you're you can tow a 15 foot wave like it's a head high wave somewhere sure uh you know you were talking about totally like a 30 different. foot face and you're getting towed in and your breathing is calm and you're searching the reef for where you want to fade when you let go of the rope. Mm -hmm. 
and it was just uh, I was ruined after that. Like I don't think I could could suffer those long paddles. I mean, those guys that are paddling in waves that big, it's truly state of the art. Uh, right. And, and so toe surfing kind of changed it for me, made me like the now I'm like the 50, 50 year old guy that wants to toe into big waves, but I don't want to. I don't want to paddle into them anymore. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> hey, man, you know, smarter not harder, right? <laughs> you're at the point where you're like, I've achieved enough. I've proven these things to myself and others. I should just uh, do it the pleasurable, easy way. <laughs> I did pay. Not my that dues. it's easy. No, you know, I, still I, still full of peril and, and risk, but it's a lot comparatively. Yeah. yeah, yeah. To yeah. paddle surfing, it definitely. Um, I've only had the opportunity to tow one time actually in Indonesia, but it just blew my mind what you were capable of doing mm-hmm. with that speed and that timing positioning it was like you know i just recall being whipped into this wave that looked like an absolute closeout going into basically dry reef at the end of it and but being going so fast i was like okay i'm just going to pack a closeout and just still traveling through the thing going i'm still standing like i don't know how this is possible because you have twice the speed you know uh-huh. you know your normal you know paddle wave but it's just like pretty mind-boggling how much of a relatively how much of a cakewalk that is you know it is because you have that speed to begin with so you're, right you're way better position yeah you're not yeah i mean you, you can decide where you want to go on the wave instead mm-hmm. of like okay where 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 do i have to go or where is the only space the wave will permit me to be mm-hmm. you know yeah it's wild i'd love to do more of it it definitely is was eye-opening for sure um but that being said i think right now i'm a little more drawn to paddle surfing just i think because of the challenge and also just you know learning it kind of more from the ground up and seeing what you're capable of there and then maybe applying some of that, you know, as you tow. Yeah. And the, the two don't really co- coexist that well. Right. So exactly. It's different there, cultures a, too. Yeah. There's a natural intolerance. Surfers don't like anything in the water that moves faster than them. Right. And, uh, that includes jet skis, towing yeah. surfers, sharks. Yeah. Uh, and Kelly Slater. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Foils. <laughs> yeah. No, hundred percent. I mean, yeah. There's a, um, it, I think there's an inherently primitive component to um, the culture of surfing in general, but also to the appreciation for the organic and the natural when you're in, you know, the ocean. That mm-hmm. anything that is artificial is really uh, not very welcomed. You know, yeah. in that space. It's a sacred space of, of the natural world. I, I totally understand it. I mean, yeah. I, most of the time I just paddle surf. Sure. Really. I mean, yeah. And, and I get a lot of satisfaction out of it. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. Um, so. You, you kind of alluded to some of this, but I guess um, especially in particular thinking about your process internally at the Todos, you know, near drowning, are there anything specifically that you can think of from your climbing experiences that you can attribute um, that have applied to surfing directly? Like, it, I know that obviously they, they seem very different, but I'm sure in terms of the internal process and everything else, you know, the mental components, I'm sure there's some parallels or things you've been able to kind of take and apply. With with uh, climbing, it's more. I mean, I, I guess what comes to mind is that I've in climbing, I've really accomplished a lot more than any of these other activities. So mm-hmm. that's really my main thing that I've done, and so I've achieved a fairly high level for myself, and that's given me a lot of confidence to try other things. And so usually, if I'm having a difficulty with something. I'll reflect back on my climbing achievements because I know that I've actually achieved something mm. of some reasonable, you know, uh, excellence in in my own experience. So, Just a good reference point. Yeah. Uh, with surfing, you know, I've I've just been persistent. Like you know, the Timex watch that keeps ticking. I'll mm. I'll take big sets on the head and go back out and 
and uh, and go for it again. And that that's how I kind of learned to surf. But but with climbing, I'll, I'll look back on climbing and say, well, it it it's really taken like uh, to climb 514 back in the 90s. Uh, that was a very hard grade back then, and it took a lot of physical training. It took a lot of exact movement. It took a lot of balance, flexibility, you know, mind control. Mm -hmm. And actually climbing hard sport climbs is actually a physically a painful experience where you're so pumped that you're in pain and you have to manage that. And it's a weird kind of pain. It's not like, it's probably the kind of a pain that a, uh, uh, someone who does cycling experiences. Uh -huh. Sure. Where it's a burn. Yeah. Right? And, and you can and thrive on the burn almost. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but you, but you're not really Somewhat thriving masochistic. on it. But you're, <laughs> yeah. you're not really happy about it. But right. You're not really sad. Yeah, it's not pleasant, <laughs> yeah. but it's driving you. Yeah. yeah. It, it's it's definitely uh, you know front and center. So I look back on that, the excellence it takes to do something like that in in that aspect of the sport, and say, well, okay, if I apply that to surfing, hmm. like, why can't I? Like you said, there was a day at lowers trestles where I couldn't even get out. And so you have to step back and go, okay, well, what am I doing wrong? Like, right. like you know, I remember people talking about channels and, and like currents and like, well, actually, how am I going to, like, I can't even surf if I can't even get out there. Mm -hmm. So I've got to, I can't figure out how to surf now. All I have to figure out is how to get out there right. so I can try surfing. Which is an act of surfing in itself, really. Yeah. I mean, the, as you know, in the ocean, everything that you see above, above the water, the, what the water's doing is a reflection of what's underneath. Right. And you have to be able to see that after a while and realize that there's topography under there, it's driving the currents, mm -hmm. you know, there's swell in the water, there's deep parts, you know, and so all that. So that allowed me to sort of break down surfing or kite surfing or whatever I was doing sure. to a point where I've got to break this down so I can understand you know, what I don't understand. That's I, I guess that's the first thing. Right. And like in surfing it was like, it's not that I don't understand how to surf a wave. It's that I don't even understand how this whole medium works. Yeah. How My friends will paddle behaves. out yeah. and not even get their hair wet, and I can't even right. get out. Like, yeah. What's going on? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's really funny. Yeah. I'm laughing um, in part, uh, you know, out of shared experiences of my own, but also because I used to be a surf instructor, and I've seen people really go through that struggle too, where they're just like they can't get their head out of their own ass sometimes, you know, and realize that 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 they're just going about it the wrong way. It's not mm -hmm. that they can't or, you know, that it's not for them. You know, it's just like, no, 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 smarter, not harder. Let's pay attention yeah. here. You know, let's be, let's be quiet and observe maybe first before acting, you know, yeah. take a, take a moment, take survey and, and, you know, it, like receive the input here. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's speaking to you. You just got to uh, listen. Yeah. You know? I, I remember there was someone climbing in the gym once and, and I could see they were really trying to, to figure out this this climb they couldn't do and I I was watching him and sometimes I'll watch people's movements on the wall and I'll I'll try to figure out what's wrong with what they're doing uh -huh. and this person was trying to do everything and therefore they were doing nothing well right so I went up to him and I said um, you know yeah, sorry for this unsolicited advice but I see you really trying and I I can observe after 45 years of climbing that you're just trying to do way too much interesting and they said Oh, that's basically my whole life. Like, <laughs> you've just summed up my whole life. That's the way I live my life. And I go, well, you're doing it on the wall. Yeah. <laughs> so well, I'm sure that was a moment of clarity for them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that was an awakening they had. That's really funny. And no shock, obviously, that how you approach things would be an extension of your normal dispositions, you know, in life or your, you know, yeah. normal reactive is, you know. You see, really so on, on doing well at these things, you really have to start 
realizing what you don't know. That's that's kind of the first thing. Totally. You know, when I, like for example, when I started flying, I don't know anything, and you have to recognize that right. and and yeah. uh, just be able to be humble. Yeah. And just be a good listener. You know, yes. It's hard. So along those lines, is there anything uh, as far as life lessons that you could specifically attribute to your time in the water, whether it be surfing or otherwise? Mm, time, I mean, you know what it's like to be in the water. It's the ocean has so many moods, you know, and, and to be out there. The way I kind of equate it is there's we're on we're on the land here, right? And everyone knows what it's like to drive on the freeways, to go to their house, you know, to hike out in the hills or whatever. Some people know what it's like to climb, but this is only one aspect. The ocean is most of our planet. And so understanding that medium is great. And so mm -hmm. it's great to be able to go in there and it does teach you lessons because it's a completely different world. Just like flying is a completely different world. Right. Everything above in the air where you just look up and you'll see a little cloud. I'll look up and I'll see airspace. I'll see right. I'll see rules. I'll see planes, I'll see weather, I'll see indications of turbulence, you know, so there's, there's all these things that we live on and in our lives and the ocean is so accessible to so many people that it's really a wonderful place to go. Sometimes it feels to me like I'm swimming in a pool. It's so mm -hmm. calm and glassy mm -hmm. and the waves are so tiny and, you know, I'm just on the foil board and it's really quiet and there's just nothing. It's just like a fun day swimming in the pool. And other days it's sort of swell of the year and you're out at Todos and you're seeing things in the water that you've never seen breaks, places break that you've never even seen break before. It's like you're on another planet. So the ocean is just alive. Closest thing to it, right? Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, a, it's alive. That's what I love about it. Yeah. And it's a new thing and it's its, its own thing. It's, and so it sounds like that, that teaches you about how to look at the world differently too when you are on land. Mm-hmm. You know that that you apply these broader perspectives of uh, different ways to perceive or interact with space. You know, you'll see cultures that grow up being uh, maritime cultures, mm. or or you know, flying or whatever. You know, you're sort of a product of your environment. Sure. So if you're from a culture that had to be at sea all the time, you know, your lessons are very hard when they're learned at sea. You know, you sink boats. I've seen it happen. I've had plenty of epics with my wave runner or people with their pongas or you know boats sinking out in the ocean and those are very hard lessons so you learn lessons out there and you bring them back here right and you're like yeah i'll never sure. uh, i'll never anchor my ski there on that boil yep. you know on a big swell right and i'll always have a way to release my anchor right i'll have a knife nearby mm -hmm. you know and so you bring that home you're like okay well how do i apply that to uh, climbing or to just everyday life. Right. Little, Little tidbits you learn. Make like, all the difference. Life is like that, like that left turn or that right turn. Right. You know, were you prepared? Sure. I, I, I mean, my friends sometimes make fun of me. They think I'm a little overly cautious, a little overly prepared. Be but good. It's a good thing to be considered that way, I think. It, it, <laughs> it was funny in, in a yearbook. It was like uh, junior high and everyone writes a poem about someone in the class. So someone wrote a poem about me and it had rock climbing and playing ping pong and something about if Randy's around, things seldom go wrong. Because I think even as a kid, I was sort of like preparing for- Calculated. Yeah, calculated, yeah. exactly. Yeah, I like that. I, I can relate a lot to yeah. that actually. I yeah. think it's a very uh, commonly underappreciated um, 
but very necessary you know attribute to have at least at least to somebody in your group you know that, that you have that person there you know it's kind of the anchor mm-hmm. you know to, to really ground the logic and the preparation you know keep it, things in check if you're putting an expedition together you need you know you need certain types absolutely like you want a doctor you want yes. a mechanic yes exactly. <laughs> you want a you want a calculated person everybody has their you, place in the village you want an inspirational yeah. person right Right. You want that person who never shines until things go horribly wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah oh, that, mean, that guy, he's not a, that great of a climber. But hey, like on 30 days into this thing, when everyone is is sucking wind, yeah, that, that person is going to keep ticking. Yeah. yeah. I think about that a lot, <laughs> um, most clearly when I uh, you know, watch movies about space missions, how it's like you, you have these people that, that are from these seemingly disparate areas, you know, a guy who's whatever into let's say soil science or something like that. And they're like, okay, yeah, I get you're going to Mars and all this, but like, what else are you good for? Then there comes a critical moment where like, oh shit, we don't know what to do. Only this person knows what to do because this is what they do. Right. And all of a sudden everything hinges on that. Talk about the next frontier is going to space and all the things that are involved in that. See some space surfing. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I don't see some solar surfers out there. (laughs) There must be some other planets with some incredible surf. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, I can. Oh, man, that's such a cool fantasy. (laughs) Water is a common thing, right? So it's going to be on other planets. Yeah, supposedly. So one one last thing that you had said to me when I first met you was um, that the best day surfing is better than the best day climbing. Why do do you think that is or how would you explain that? Surfing is that elusive carrot that you're always chasing. Hmm. Climbing is always there. It's just, it could be more humid, less humid. It might be a rain day where you can't climb, but it's basically there waiting for you. Sure. And the experience of climbing is wonderful. And it's, but there's this sort of elusive nature about surfing where there's that one day you always are, are trying to get back to or trying to score. Yeah. And when you do, you remember it forever. Um, climbing, sometimes I'll do the climb of my life and I'll be happy for a week. And that's a long, long time to be happy about a climb. That is. I can still remember my best day surfing. Oh yeah. And for it's sure. just vivid in my mind, like, oh my God, I can't believe that day. Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a certain level of, it's such a high level of conditionality that needs to, you know, all the elements that have to coalesce to provide the opportunity to actually have closure of what you've been trying to achieve you know, is so much more a novelty than any other situation. You know, the conditions are, yeah, there's some variables, like you said, with climbing and other things, but there are so many variables in the ocean. That makes sense. You could also have everything you want for the perfect surf day, but there right. could be 50 guys out. Right. And well, 40, that's another variable. And 49 of them might be better surfers than uh-huh. you. Or just, yeah, yeah just assholes <laughs> and you get the best way of your life and it's yeah. not as fun anymore because yeah, someone's yeah. scowling at you or uh-huh. something, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh, this is nice. I'd rather it was my friends out or, you know. Uh-huh. <laughs> that's really funny. That makes sense. Yeah, that makes total sense. So just kind of wrapping up, I'll ask you two signature questions I've been asking every guest so far. I'm kind of just playing around with. But um, the first would be, um, what is your earliest memory of water in your life? I don't know how to answer that. I wasn't a water guy. I was a I was a land guy, you know, a mountain, a rock guy. Yeah. For so long, that I don't even remember that. Yeah, it just doesn't stand out as much as an element. No. Obviously, I, there I, the, the first thing I remember seeing was a cloud in the sky. Uh huh. Like, yeah. I remember that water. Yeah. Absolutely. It is so vapor. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that that's just as relevant. I mean, it's obviously, you know, solid, gaseous, and liquid. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter what form it's in. Mm-hmm. That's cool. I, it's nice to actually have somebody who can't think of a specific and fluid form. 
and that it's, I, you know. I, I do remember asking my mom, I said, what's that white puffy thing uh -huh. up there? <laughs> <laughs> like it's some inanimate hard object or something yeah. floating. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. I, I mess with my friends surfing sometimes where if I'm teaching them how to surf, you know, one of the first lessons is triangulate your position. Sure. And I'll say, okay, you line up that hill and you got to line up something in the background like that cloud. <laughs> and then sometimes they'll go, wait a minute. Wait a minute. <laughs> Stop it. Yeah. Throw me for a loop. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so last one would just be, uh, and we kind of touched a little bit on this, but I guess if you could offer any one piece of advice to our listeners um, that would enable them to better surf the waves of life, what do you think that would be? Don't be afraid to go you know, out of your comfort zone. Mm. Don't be afraid to do that. Uh, you know, Embrace it. You'll, you'll be happy you did. That's, that's my advice. Uh, that's a great one. I love it. Is there anything else you got going on right now that you'd like to share as far as exciting projects or, I don't know, any cool trips coming up or anything like that that uh, people can look into or follow along with? I'm, uh, well, I'm on Instagram. I, I post there sometimes. Cool. A lot of the things I do, I, we're still developing new climbing areas we may not post about for a while. Sure. So I, I, I feel like the stay tuned yeah stay tuned but i don't know it's i like the world sometimes where things are are simple now yeah. it's it's almost like the social media sometimes gets out of control totally you know we're, we're we'll be surfing some new spot not like we found it but some spot that people don't know about yeah. or some climbing area and all of a sudden it could blow up on instagram and then it's completely changed yeah. so i think that i guess i'm always pursuing something that is passionate for me and that I like doing hmm. and I kind of like going to the new areas and uncrowded areas so my yeah. my focus tends to be on uh, stay tuned and I'll tell you about it in five years yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you about it after it's blown out yeah. and <laughs> everyone's been posting about it yeah. I can so, respect that completely I, I do I try to do that as much as I can as well whenever I share about surfing or certainly if I'm posting about surfing you know it's just um you know, that, like you said, I mean, that's a lot of what's driving us there in the first place is having that space and freedom from people and populations. So why, why welcome the crowd, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> why to show them the way, you know? So I've had people tell me, oh, you, you got to tell people about these places more, you know, more promptly or whatever. And no. it's like, well, hey, that's, mm -hmm. for me, that's, I, I figure if I wasn't a climber and born in the century that I was, that if I was any other generation I would have been like to be an old world explorer. Yeah. Where you're on horseback and you're riding and you all of a sudden you find the Grand Canyon. Right. You're like, hey, wait a minute. That's exactly <laughs> what I was going to say. Yeah. It was just the merit of exploration. I mean, hey, let's, you know, leave something up to mystery here. You know, like mm -hmm. you said, get outside of your comfort zone. Go find something mm -hmm. and have that be your new little personal secret or, you know, gem that you always have. Yeah, you'll never... You're never going to find any enlightenment or get out of your comfort zone unless you get away from your computer. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Put it down, just go out there. Yeah. I have a lot of friends who kind of, um, some very endearingly and some kind of genuinely poke fun at me for like always kind of getting way off the beaten path and looking for real novelty, sometimes in terms of surfing. And uh, I always find that it's, it's a, I, I really welcome it because I really enjoy that so much and that. People are always like, well, where, you know, like, well, and I, my, I always just say, you know, you won't know till you go. You know, I mean, that's just, that's, it's that simple. Yeah, uh -huh. sure. You wrote that place off, but have you been there? You know, <laughs> okay, well, I guess you won't know then, you know. That, that's one thing I've been enjoying about foil surfing is that it creates like a whole new set of wave potential areas, like waves that we used to not look at are now like 
great spots. Right, right. So that's something that I'm starting to realize between listening to you talk about it and then the more that I pay attention to it these days, that it definitely uh, opens up a whole new kind of way of looking at the map, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'll be moving up to Oregon in about a year, so I, I'm considering exploring, you know, water through some alternative ways of, of <laughs> riding crafts. And I'm a little reluctant to like admit that I'm gonna get into this stuff yet, but I'm kind of looking forward to it too. <laughs> uh-huh. What kind, like kayaking or? Kayaking, uh, you know, maybe kite surfing, foiling, uh-huh. whatever. I mean, I definitely will always do my best to not be around people when I do these things, just because I'd rather be immersed in nature anyways and not be around crowds. But I think that why not? Mm-hmm. If it's if if it's world-class kite surfing and it's pretty terrible surfing, paddle surfing, like, well, we should probably go kite surfing then, mm-hmm. you know, or whatever, vice versa, you know, maybe don't go kite surfing. It's a paddle spot. I just feel like, hey, what's what's with the stubborn resistance to alternative paths here? There, There is sort of a concept of highest and best use, which I apply myself to. It's you'll see it happening on El Cap and Yosemite now where people are free climbing routes that used to be aid climbs and people are speed climbing or you know moving fast up certain routes. So there's there's almost this, this transition where what used to be considered the appropriate use of a route, mm-hmm. of a climbing route is now changing because there's really like a whole new generation of people doing it in much better style. Sure. And with much better tools. And so you bring that to the water and the surfing environment, you can say, well, hey, there, there's clearly days where the kite surfer should have it because it's blowing 15 knots side offshore or side on. It's blown out for surfing. Um, it's perfect peeling right, and you could just whack that lip like endlessly down the line. Uh, or there's days where the tow guy should have it because the paddle guys are getting nothing, right. even though there might be you one. Can't paddle. Yeah. Even though maybe one guy got one wave that Surfline will feature, mm-hmm. like uh, maybe the tow guys fifty got waves like ridden, for fifty it. waves yeah. ridden for that one. Right. So there's all there's sort of that that thing that I subscribe to, and you know I'll I'll concede and move over when I see like the next generation or some better tool come along. Foiling is that on certain places, I stand up paddle boards even though I dissed them earlier the guys that know how to ride those things mm-hmm. it makes a lot of sense yeah. or just yeah. you know using it even as a way to explore nature you know to access waterways that or i don't know fish whatever it doesn't matter it's just like you know right tool for the right application yeah you know, in this case we're looking for the peak experience you know yeah. whatever it is you drive from that so you know apply whatever you need to apply as far as equipment accordingly i mean how how could you foresee foil surfing for example 20 years ago you would never even conceive that that was a no, not at like, all there, there's one guy on Instagram I saw who he has this little snippet where he answers a telephone and he goes, hey, mate, you wouldn't believe it. I'm it's me in the future, like 20 years from now. And I'm and I'm like flying. <laughs> I'm, I'm like flying above the ocean. And these uh, flying robots are taking videos of me. You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that's exactly what he's doing. Right. Yeah. There's a drone taking like a video. Like sci-fi. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's so hilarious. We can't really foresee what's going on. And so I think it's just a wonderful experience that we can still do new things like that. Yeah. Important to stay open. Yeah. Got to stay open. Got to stay young. Yes. Yeah, Got to get Keep playing. Yeah. Well, right on. All right. Thanks, thanks for, for doing me. this, man. This was right. awesome. I really thanks appreciate so. you taking the time. That's going to do it for our show today, everybody. If you enjoyed what you heard in your time with us, please take the time to tell someone about the show. It's listener recommendations and support from people like you that make the show possible. 
Be sure to stay tuned to the show in the coming weeks, as I've got some exciting episodes coming out with some amazing special guests, including big wave world surfing champion Greg Long, inventive industrial designer Taylor Lane, and many more. As always, feel free to reach out to me directly through our website or on social media. If you think of it, next time you're listening to an episode and feel inspired to do so, record an audio message about where you are and or what you're feeling when you're listening to the episode. Email it to me, and I'll work on including your message into a future episode. If you want to be extra awesome, hop on over to iTunes and leave us a review. It's greatly helpful in growing the show, and I welcome the good, the bad, and the ugly. As a closing note, while grappling with the strange times of the COVID-19 pandemic, I encourage everybody to find ways of finding relative calm in your lives, both internally and externally. I feel it is important that we find ways to remain cautious and well-informed without slipping into a fear-based mentality that suppresses our vitality and the high functioning of our better senses. The situation is very real and very serious, but we will be okay, and this too shall pass. I hope that all of you are taking extra good care of yourselves and your loved ones in this time of resting and healing. Remember that each wave is unique and dictates how we are to interact with the greatest level of synchronicity. So I hope all of you continue to surf the waves of life to the fullest of your creative and expressive potentials. Today, I'm going to leave you with an energizing and uplifting track by one of my all-time favorites, Bonobo, titled, We Could Forever. And until next time, be well, keep in touch, and enjoy the ride.